Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, the host of this show, as well as the director of Creating a Family. And you can find all of our resources at our website, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to every parent's heart. And quite frankly, one of the question, one of the topics that we get some of the most questions, both in our support group as well as emails, and, and that topic is how do we discipline children? Uh, and specifically, how do we discipline kids who have experienced trauma? So today, we're going to be talking about some practical tips for disciplining kids who have experienced trauma. And we'll be talking with Karen Doyle Buckwalter. She is a licensed clinical social worker, a registered play therapist and supervisor and published author specializing in attachment, trauma, and adoption issues. She is the director of clinical practices at Chaddock. And she is the author of Raising the Challenging Child, How to Minimize Tantrums, Reduce Conflict, and Increase Cooperation. I should say she is the co-author with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons-Sunshine. Welcome, Karen, to Creating a Family. This is a topic everyone is excited to hear about. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be here, Dawn. It's always nice to see you and nice to talk about some of these things and find ways to support parents and others who are caring for kids that have challenging behaviors. Absolutely. You know, the heart and soul of discipline is supposed to be teaching. So I think it helps to approach disciplining kids, all kids, but especially kids of experienced trauma, with the mindset that we're teaching our kids rather than punishing them. So today we're going to be focusing on five tried and true tips that really work when disciplining kids who've experienced trauma. And I'm going to be honest, the first is my favorite, and that is the relationship bank account. Uh, What do you mean by putting in uh, uh, credit to the relationship bank? And why is that important when we're talking about a discipline? Because that doesn't sound like much of a discipline method. Right. Well, the relationship bank account concept is similar to your own bank account. Um, If you put deposits in your bank account with your checks or however we do it these days where we just scan things and put it in the bank account or transfer things, there's money in your bank account so that when you have to make a withdrawal, there's something to draw on. So the idea of the relationship bank account is we need to make enough deposits into the relationship. And by that, we need, we need positive interactions. We need, we need praise. We need, we mean saying yes. Um, Because when you have to give a no or ask your child to do something that they don't want to do, which is inevitable, of course. Yep. Or, you know, when when you are wanting them to, say, do their homework, all of those things are withdrawals on the relationship bank account. And so if you have not put deposits in and you're just um, constantly making withdrawals, it's not going to work very well. Um, And I think parents really get into a cycle of frustration, which leads to lots of withdrawals. Do this, do that, shouting at your child, frustrated at your child. And it's easy then for that account balance to be all withdrawals and new deposits. 
So, so basically it's banking goodwill. You spend effort yeah, building so, your relationship with the kids. So you've banked right. up some goodwill for when you need to say no, or you need for them to do something, or you need to set a firm rule. Is that, be, is that a good summary? Yeah, I think it is because nobody likes to do that. Nobody, we don't like to be told to do a chore or we don't like to get an assignment at work that we, we don't like, but you know, if, if, if we have a good relationship with that supervisor or if we have a good relationship with that person, we're going to have more understanding, more patience, more tolerance. And it's the same with kids. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when they get more yeses than noes, it matters. And so when you start always having noes and almost never having yeses, that balance drops and you're going to be more likely to not have cooperation, to have tantrums, to have refusals, and to have oppositional behavior. So let's talk about some ideas for making quick and easy deposits, some, some, some quick and easy positives that we can give our kids. And, and quite frankly, more important, get our mindsets wrapped around the idea that we need to be doing this. So you mentioned one, and that is praise. So, so what do you praise? Successes, yes. But, but what if your kid's not very successful? Yeah, well, I want to, I'm really glad we're talking about praise because um, parents do not recognize that they're not doing this until I bring it to their attention, um, that it's mostly negative comments they're saying to their child. Um, And so praise can be like, you did a good job making your bed. Uh, Thanks for starting your homework before I told you to. It's great that you're helping me pull the weeds. Um, Thanks for getting that for my sister. I mean, there's so many things throughout the day. And sometimes parents get into this mindset, well, my child should just be doing that. Like they don't need praise for that. But once again, you know, think about adult relationships. Think about when somebody at work says you did a good job on something or thank you for staying late. Uh, or something like that. You know, Dawn, for some reason, a lot of these things seem really obvious in our other relationships, adult to adult, but it seems like suddenly when we start thinking about children, it sort of all goes out the window. (laughs) You know, it's right. If we think about it, like take work, for example, uh, and somebody says, "Thanks uh, thanks for getting that report to me. Well, I mean, it was my job, of course, so I was supposed to get it. I didn't do anything. But it makes you feel good when somebody said, thanks for getting the report. Yes, it was my job. I didn't go over and above. But somebody's acknowledged the effort that I put in, and it's just saying thank you. And it makes you feel exactly. better. You're exactly. absolutely right. And we do it with we do it in other relationships, but we assume because of the power differential between parent and child that we don't have to do it with kids. And kids are are just like us in that respect. So, yeah. I love how you said that. That's exactly right. So let's also, what another quick and easy one that you talk about is letting kids choose whenever possible. And especially when you really don't care. <laughs> letting them choose right. when, they, when the choice is don't makes no difference to you whatsoever. Uh, right. It, why right. is that effective? You know, because whether a child has the blue cup or the orange cup, it's like, oh, who cares? But my kids care. Well, kids care about things like that because kids don't have a lot of power and choice. They're basically ordered around a lot of the day by (laughs) grownups, by teachers, by coaches, uh, by their parents, by their grandma. 
Um, and so small, I mean, the younger the child, the less power they have. Um, and pretty much their whole, you're going here, you're doing this, you're doing that. So children like to have a sense of autonomy and power. And at younger ages, like you said, it has to be a simple choice. You know, we can't give young children complicated choices, but we can say, do you want the blue cup or the red cup? Do you want your princess pajamas or your, you know, ballerina pajamas? I mean, those different things that don't matter. First, they give the child a sense of power and autonomy. And again, it's a little bit like that relationship bank account, because then when there is a situation that comes up where you can't give a choice, like we have to leave the store now, or no, you can't have that thing in the candy aisle. It's it's going to be more likely that the child will accept it because they've had you filled up that sense of empowerment and choice by giving choices at other times when the cost was low for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. Another quick and easy, and the last one we're going to cover, easy way of making a deposit in the relationship bank account is looking for opportunities to compromise with our kids. What do you mean by that? And why is that a, a deposit? Well, it's a, Again, going back to feeling like I have a say in something, feeling like my opinion matters. I'll tell you, John, when I first got involved in this work in the 90s, in working with children with trauma in their history and attachment disorders, there was a lot about the parent has to be in charge. The parent has to take control. Like the the children have to do it right the first time, fast and snappy and give you eye contact. There was like all of this rigidity and what I was reading was effective with these children. And they definitely were not talking about give, give lots of choices. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, as as time went on and and we began to see more about these children's, um, these children's histories and how disempowered they were and how, how um, important it was for them to have a sense of agency and feelings of my opinion matters, my thoughts matter, what I think and feel matters. You know, if you have an internal working model that I don't matter, what I say doesn't matter, caregivers don't care about me, um, you want to, to be able to give a sense of you do have the opportunity to speak up and we can compromise. You know what compromise says to a kid? What? How you think and feel matters here. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to hear and I'm willing to see if there's a way that can be a win-win for both of us. Um, and it can't always be, but I think this idea that we can't collaborate, you know, I was talking with a mom yesterday and she was thinking about what am I going to do with the kids all summer? And I know without, you know, a schedule, my kids like unravel. I'm sure a lot of parent people listening are maybe thinking about the summer. And I said, you know, are there ways that you could collaborate with your daughter on the schedule? She's like, I never thought about that. Like, you know, say, what are some, you know, here's a list of activities, you know, that, that we could do, which one would you like to do the most? Or we can't do all of them, you know, there has to be some compromise and some give and take, but you're going to be more bought into a decision as an adult or a child, if how you wanted it to go, uh, works. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times compromise is that same thing as like choice, like saying, you know, 
if a child wants five more minutes to play something or something like that, you know, one of the things that they talk about in, in TBRI is, you know, children asking for a compromise, you know, could I have five more minutes to play and then I'll go to bed. Granted, you can't do that on every single thing, but I also don't think you should be like, we'll never do that. It's a hard line and you're going now. Yep. Bedtime is bedtime. Darn it. You know? Yeah. 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 Because sometimes when you do that hard line, guess what? You're going to have a lot bigger battle than waiting five minutes on your hands. Mm-hmm. When you take that really like rigid, hard line mm-hmm. and granted that has to happen sometimes, but when pa- where parents get into trouble is no compromise and it's my way or the highway. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's, I've always heard of the magic rule of five. Will you explain what that means with the, 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 the ratio of positive to deposits versus withdrawals if we're keeping with the yes. relationship bank account analogy here? Yeah. So this um, information, this data actually comes out of research with couples, John and Julie Gottman, looking at marriages and their ability to predict whether or not a couple would get a divorce. And what they found was if there, there was not a ratio of five positive comments to every one negative, it was highly predictive of divorce. And so that information became very popular, you know, talking about, uh, you know, in, in relationships, in, in marital or couple relationships, but it started even creeping into the work place, you know, you have to have five positives to one negative with with uh, your people that you work with. And we wanted to put it in this book. And we think it's really important, not just for kids with a trauma history, but for all kids mm-hmm. to really it, it, think about that. Yeah, really think about that. You know, that is a lot more positive than negative. You know what, it keeps you honest as a parent, if you're thinking about that, because then you're going to have to all right, we got bedtime coming up. I know I got to get some positives in because by golly, we're, we're going to probably have a negative yes. here. So, but it does yes. make you focus on the, okay, what is something that I could, let me look at my child right now and find something positive to say. Yes. And, and you know, sometimes the, the nicest positive can just be, you're a cool kid, you know, <laughs> or just something exactly. that just, but, but also just, all right, I've got to focus on finding and, and, Honestly, we what we look for, we often find, and and if we don't look for it, we don't see it. So uh, all the more reason why. Uh, and I'm a person who functions well with structure rules. So <laughs> giving me that five yes. to one really helps. Yes. Yes. Are you appreciating what you're hearing today in our discussion with Karen Bookwalter on disciplining kids? We are so excited to offer you more expert-based content, just like today's podcast. Thanks to our generous sponsor, the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. When you go to their website, or their site with these courses, which is uh, bit.ly slash JBF support, all cap, you can find several free online courses. There's a great variety of topics to choose from. One is disciplining while maintaining attachment, directly online with today's show. Each course is free when you use the coupon code, all cap, JBF strong at checkout. Check it out today. And the coupon code is JBF strong and each letter is capitalized. Okay. A question that we will sometimes get is that what's the difference between 
um, some of this, especially the let's praise them, let's make sure we have five positives. Aren't we just spoiling our kids? Yeah. So my philosophy on that is um, that children have a right to these things for being children, you know, to be valued, to feel special, um, to know that they're doing a good job on something. And so the idea that that is somehow spoiling them, I really try to help parents like get out of that mindset. Um, It doesn't mean we did not at all say don't have consequences. We never said that. We haven't talked about that yet, but we never said, you know, praising means no matter what they do, it's okay. So we don't mean never have any limits. We can have limits. We can have consequences. I think not having any limits, boundaries, and consequences spoils kids. I don't think positive feedback and praise does. And I'd also say that when you say something nice to your husband, are you spoiling him? When your boss thanks you for getting a report in, is that spoiling you? It makes you feel good. So is is the essence of spoiling meaning when somebody feels good about themselves? Or is that just playing good parenting or bossing or, or spousing? Right. Yeah. Okay. And this is what, what, what I sometimes say to, to, to folks is if, if you wouldn't say it to your partner or a friend, or if you wouldn't treat them that way, maybe you need to evaluate if you want to treat your child that way or say that to your child. Sometimes that's that. a good litmus test. Yeah, that is a wonderful litmus test. And if it isn't, then you maybe need to assess how you're treating other people in your life too. <laughs> that's uh, true. So when, so when we do have to say no, which that's part of life. You have a saying on saying sideswipe instead of confront. What do you mean by that? So a lot of times um, in a situation where a child can't do something, we want to, we straight up are like, no, you know, you can't do that. Uh, a sideswipe would be, you know, maybe a child um, is saying, I want to uh, play with my new uh, toy, you know, whatever it may be. I want to um, play with my new doll or Barbie or whatever. And instead of saying, no, you can't, a sideswipe would be saying, hey, we're going to pick up the rest of the toys first, and then we'll play with that. Or, hey, we need to finish the dishes, and then we'll do that. So it's really like, I I never once said, no, you can't play with the doll or the Barbie. I'm saying we're going to do this first, and then. And a lot of children who have problems with being oppositional diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and other problematic behaviors, they have a habitual response to the word no, to the point that they almost react to the word no, even if they don't really care about the thing. Just so many parents you'll talk to, you say, well, when, when is the problem with your child? Well, whenever you tell them no, well, don't tell them no. Exactly. Uh, there, it becomes, it becomes a habitual response from the child, a knee jerk. Is there, is there something people sometimes say to you where you have a knee jerk response that it really annoys you or something? I mean, that's how we could relate to it. So, so just avoid that word and just say, we're going to, well, first we're doing this and then we'll do that. It's also stating it in the positive. It's also communicating. We are going to get to that. Mm-hmm. And it makes a world of difference, especially with kids that can be oppositional when they hear that word. No. Mm-hmm. 
In fact, you can even say the word yes. Sure, you can play with the Barbie. Let's get this dishes done first. Exactly. Hurry up. Here, let's, yes. let's get them done really yeah. quick. Yeah, start thinking along yeah. those lines. Exactly. That was our first tip, uh, putting in deposits in the relationship bank account. Our second tip is to respond to what is beneath the behavior. What do you mean by that? This might be one of the most important concepts in the book and one of the most important concepts in parenting children with a history of trauma and parenting children that don't have a history of trauma. And that is behavior is just a symptom. So it is a symptom of something else. Just like, for example, if a child is biting their nails, it could be a symptom of anxiety or fear. So you could eliminate biting their nails and they'll probably start doing something else to deal with their anxiety and fear. So if you only look at just about anyone can extinguish a symptom, but if you don't deal with the feelings underneath it, It's about the same as cutting off the top of a dandelion and expecting that, you know, the dandelion's not going to grow back. It will grow back. And so this is where I think parents have to almost be kind of like a detective because different behaviors can mean very different things. The same behavior could have different meanings when we look beneath the behavior. So until you deal with what's under the behavior, the behavior it's either going to not stop at all, or it's going to like come out in some other negative way. Does that make sense? It does. So what are some strategies for finding deeper? Well, I think you have to wonder, you have to be curious, you have to be open. You know, this is something I often work with in therapy with parents, um, so there, there can be a lot of things. And I, you know, even something like hoarding food can mean different things for different kids. Um, some kids, um, they maybe came from an environment of deprivation. You know, we work, we, we know lots of kids in, in foster care or orphanage care. And so they, they are maybe afraid that food is never going to be available. And so, you know, then we would have to work on that. Like, how do we help them feel? feel that food is going to be available. For another kid, it might be a need for nurturance. And I have to work on the parent showing more affection and closeness with the child. And, you know, making sure food was available all the time would not help that child. So that's why we we have the behavior and we have to look at what's under the behavior. Okay. And there's just lots of situations where we have have to do that and consequences have to be different you know once um we had a child at Chadak in our residential treatment program it was really acting out throwing a chair across the room a really dangerous situation the night before and there was a field trip the next day and normally if a child did something like that the idea would be like, well, they can't go on the special field trip the next day. They're, they're going to have to stay back. But for that child, the parent had not shown up for a visit and they hadn't seen them in a really, really long time. And they were really, really sad. And some of their core issues are around abandonment and not mattering and being invisible. And you know what? I probably would have thrown a chair too. So let's not, let's not say he can't go on the trip because that was like 
if you look beneath that behavior, that was a really painful feeling and a really logical response. Now, are we going to have a consequence? Are we going to say throwing chairs is okay all the time? No, but we're not going to take the trip away from him because of what was underneath that behavior. So parents don't like this maybe so much because they're looking for, if they do this, you do this sort of a recipe cookbook approach, but kids are just more complicated than humans. Humans are. (laughs) Yes. Hey guys, by the way, the creating a family podcast has an extensive archive of shows on the topic of discipline and parenting kids who've experienced trauma. You can begin by listening to the other shows right now on your phone or in the car. Go to whatever your favorite podcast catcher is or podcast app that's on your phone. Search by our title, Creating a Family, follow us, and then scroll through the titles to help you decide which one you need the most. And if they're dealing with discipline, discipline will be in the title. All right. So our our this is uh, our first tip was to make more deposits than withdrawals in the relationship bank account. The second tip was to respond to what is beneath the behavior. And the third tip, I think, is such an important one, too, and that is to re-examine our expectations. I so often think, in fact, I think a great deal of research has found that a lot of the problems we parents face is because we have unrealistic expectations of our kids. And I think that's especially the case with kids who've experienced early life trauma. So um, let's talk some about setting expectations and re-examining our expectations. Why is that important? Well, I think it's important because in a lot of situations, whether it's it's children with a trauma history or our own children, we have ideas going into parenting of what our kids are going to be like and what they're going to achieve and what they're going to do and what they're going to like. Now, we might say, oh, no. We're, we're just here to, you know, we, we don't think that way. Well, I think parents, when those expectations start to not be met, then they start to figure out, yeah, I did have a lot of expectations, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, the first thing is to think about your child as an individual and accepting where they are at. We had uh, a family that we worked with and the parents, um, they were both pretty introverted, kind of bookworms, and they adopted a child who was very athletic, very physical, and um, very sports oriented. And um, they said, we kind of hoped we would have gotten a bookworm. (laughs) Like, we we don't know what to do with him. Uh, and so, you know, it, sometimes you need a lot of help and coaching and support. Um, I've worked with parents with kids that have significant learning disabilities and learning issues, and the parents are determined that they were going to get into some certain college that is not realistic. Um, sometimes as parents, we can, you know, really want our child to be into sports or, you know, it could be the opposite problem. The parents are really into sports and the kid's a bookworm. Mm -hmm. Um, So really looking at who is this person before me 
and letting them be their own person and trying to meet them with who they are rather than mold them into everything that we want them to be. Yeah. I think that is, and and expectations are sometimes also uh, related to our kids' behavior that I wasn't expecting them to have this many problems. I wasn't expecting them to act this way. I wasn't, uh, this is my expectations for the the act of parenting are different too. Not just my expectations for my child, but I, I didn't expect parenting to be this hard. I didn't expect to feel this frustrated. I didn't expect, expect, expect. Um, and it could be a real boomerang for you. Yeah. And I also think that a lot of expectations come from a parent's own history. Um, and let's say, uh, you know, if, if they, if they spoke up or talked back or something in their family, I mean, let's say their father got extremely angry and berating and, and cruel to them. So when the child then speaks up or talks back, the child is then, um, which is to, I mean, all kids are going to do that sometimes. Okay. But the parent remembering that from their own history gets so triggered by that and honestly even upset by how their parent treated them and then they're having the child say these things that they're not consciously connecting it but it feels the same as when their parent treated them that way and so then your child's paying the price for the pain of your history and the pain of their current behavior and that's why we get like an over response out of parents around certain things. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, or at least on the theoretical. <laughs> It'd be a whole lot harder to to apply it, I suspect, but, but it certainly makes uh, good sense theoretically. Well, wait, parents have to parents have to look at what are my own wounds from my past. What are my so called triggers? What are the behaviors that my child does that make me like go off the rails? Even when maybe sometimes they're not even that big of a behavior. Like, why can't I control that? Why do I do that? Why can't I do what I read in the book? You know, I know logically this isn't the best response. Many times it's one's own history that's driving their behavior rather than what's right in front of them. And so it's it's a lot of self-searching. Mm-hmm. All right. As we march through our five tips, the first one is putting more deposits and withdrawals into the relationship bank account. The second one is responding to what is beneath the behavior. The third one is re-examining your expectations, both about for your child and for what parenting would be like. The fourth one is balancing structure and nurture. So let's talk some about that. It seems to me both are important, but uh, uh, why is it important that uh, that we have such a balance between the two? And how do we and how do we know if we've achieved a balance? Yeah. So um, when I talk to families about this, um, I talk about most of us come to the table as being more like a structure kind of person. I'm a drill sergeant. I like the rules. I like to run a tight ship. That kind of 
thinking or the nurture, you know, oh, I'm so affectionate. I like to give lots of hugs and kisses. If I send the children up to, you know, up, you know, to their room to, to, for a punishment or something, I end up taking them ice cream, you know? And so <laughs> we have these two different pieces and, and we see this all the time, not just with the parents I work with, but even hiring staff at Chaddock in our residential program, you just have some people that are kind of more one or the other. So I have parents look at, am I kind of the more nurture laid back, let it go person, or I'm like, we got to do it this way toe the line drill sergeant. And I let them know that we need both. So whatever comes to you naturally, we're not probably going to have to worry as much about that one. But if you're super structured, you have to bring up your ability to nurture your child and to, to be, to be more forgiving, to be more flexible, sometimes be more affectionate. Um, and if you're the person that that comes very easy to you, but you really just can't follow through on limits and boundaries. And when you say no, it doesn't mean no when it comes out of you and your kids know it. Okay. Then if you're that person, we have to help you with the structure piece. And so I think what happens is people come by this naturally and then they just do what they do. And we're saying, no, you need to learn because kids need both. Kids really need both. You know, we sometimes hear people say, well, you know, this child, I, I've read his record. I know where this poor child has come from. And he's he's had a tough life. So I'm going to air, I'm just going to focus on the nurturing and structure will come. Other people can structure him. He's had enough structure in his life. What would you say to that? I would say structure is safety, especially for kids that come from chaotic environments. Um, so having structure in your home, a child understanding rules, limits, boundaries. When we, we have a program at Chadak um, where we go in and do in-home intensives with families across the country. It's sort of like nanny 911, but with therapists. And um, sometimes when we go into a home, um, the partner that I go with, she's very high structure. She's a former state trooper before she got into this work many years ago. And she is like, you know, this is how it's going to go. This is how we're going to work. This is what we're doing now. And sometimes parents will say to us, our kids love her. Why, Why do they just love her so much? You know, she seems like kind of tough on them. And we say, it's because they feel safe. They know she's strong. They know what's expected. They know that they'll be uh, safe with her. There's no ambiguity. When you grow up in chaos and your home feels like chaos, that's not good. Mm-hmm. One of the things we tell parents is that, especially at the beginning, set up a routine. Let your child, when they're first and even not just first, but but especially when they're first in your home, let them understand the predictability so they will know what's coming next. Uh, that first we eat, then we first we brush our teeth, then we eat, then we play outside, then we come in and we read books, then we have lunch, then we clean up, then we and and at the beginning to even 
reinforce that structure of just keep with it even if you're not a structured oriented person until you see that the child has begun to settle down and and see the routine and somehow we have the, it, and he or she can predict what's going to be happening next um and that comes easier to some people than others especially the people who like to kind of you know play it by ear see what's going to come you know roll with the flow um Hopefully you can get back to that if that's your natural instinct. But at first, especially, let the kids have some predictability. Mm-hmm. It's it's so important mm-hmm. if you came from an environment where it wasn't going to be predictable, especially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, too, about that balance of, of structure and nurture is the, and it sounds trite because I think most of our parents have said this before in the past, but choose your battles. Um And that's a hard one. Choosing what things to ignore, uh, especially when you have a kid that's that's being very rebellious, it seems like everything they're doing could draw attention. So why is it important to ignore some behaviors, especially if it feels like that you're just letting them get away with murder? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I'll say is ignoring can definitely go too far. Um, And I've, I've, again, you know, worked with families where it is like the the kids are hitting, biting, kicking, throwing things, swearing at the people, calling the parents names, you know, things like that. And we, we need to work on that. We, and you know, I'll, they'll say, well, the therapist told me to ignore it. And I'll say, well, (laughs) some things we ignore, but we can't ignore everything. We have to have structure and boundaries. So the first thing I would say is you can't, we don't want to overuse it. Okay. The next thing I would say about the pick your battles is I see, and I've done it myself. All, you know, I, I, I want to say full disclosure, all the things I talk about, I've done these things myself as a parent. Yep. Same and, and have to, to, to work on it all the time. But um, some people will pick something like, you're going to finish all the food on your plate. You can't shove food down a kid's throat and make them eat it. Mm-hmm. So the first thing about picking your battles, don't pick one. You, it's not possible for you to win no matter what. <laughs> Don't pick a battle you're going to absolutely, the kid has all the power. Exactly. Pick the one. Right. If you're going to pick it, pick one you're going to win. Yes. Otherwise it, it reinforces you're not strong. You're not safe. You can't make things happen, you know? And so it, you would be, you know, maybe surprised, maybe not surprised how many times, you know, parents will pick battles that they can't win. You know, some parents will, get in a battle over a haircut or whether or not a kid's socks match. I mean, have you noticed Dawn? Like people don't care about socks matching anymore. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a true story of my own. <laughs> okay. um, you know, I um, am not really sure why I decided this was important. Rolling your eyes, teenage daughter. Of course you could have guessed that 14. And uh, it, it, she was, uh, okay, mom, and then rolled her eyes. And I decided right then and there that I just wasn't going to put up with that. So I drew the line in the sand about rolling eyes. That's a perfect example of something. She said, okay, she actually did was going to do what I had asked, but I picked a fight, which I won, but I'm not particularly proud over it, over the fact that when she said, okay, she rolled her eyes. (laughs) I, and I look back and I go, oh my gosh, honestly, I mean, clearly there was something else going on in my world that time, but <laughs> at that day, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Well, I think the other piece of that is if you're going to get what you want, like 
who cares? You know, if the kid rolls their eyes, but then does the homework or rolls their eyes, then does the dishes, then rolls their eyes, but takes the trash out or even takes the trash out muttering. Let's not get caught up on the muttering. Let's look long-term. You got them to do the behavior you wanted. Let's let go of that other piece and not make that a battle. Yep. 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 (laughs) Well, where were you, you know, five years ago when I was fighting that battle? This show and all the resources we have are provided and are brought to you by the support of our partner agencies. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information for those parenting kids through adoption, fostering, or kinship care. One such partner is Children's Connection, and they are an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S. They also provide home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. Another partner is Adoptions from the Heart. For over 35 years, they have helped create over 7,000 families through domestic infant adoption. Adoptions from the Heart can also provide home study only services. They work with people all across the U.S. and are licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. All right. So that is a balancing of structure and nurture. Looking for that balance is our fourth tip. And then the fifth tip is sharing power to gain power. So I'm assuming that has to go back to compromising and negotiating. Am I right? Yes, you're right. And it's probably good that we're revisiting it because if you ask the average parent, do you think you should compromise and negotiate with your child? I think a lot of them are going to say no. Hmm. So this is sometimes a new idea for parents, especially if they were raised in an environment where that was not modeled at all. You do what I say and you do the way I say it when I say it. And so they're going to need some help with that. They're going to need some opportunities to try that out and model that and um, see that. Um, Sometimes I practice that with sessions with parents and they go back and they try it and they're really surprised. Once they get over the hump of you don't negotiate and compromise, you know, they, they do it my way. And I say, well, they're not doing it your way. So that's really not working. How's that working out for you? Right. Right. So let's, let's give it a try. You know, I really encourage, when I work with parents, I mean, we're a team and we're coming up every, every idea in this book is tried and true and tested with, with families we've worked with and kids we've worked with at Chaddock. And it's true. Sometimes what works for one doesn't work for another, but try the compromise. Try negotiating something. See if it works out better. Let's just try it. If it doesn't work, okay, we'll try something else. Do something different. Get out of the cycle. With compromise, you do not have to give up on the the principles, the fundamental things that you don't want to compromise on. There are certain things that you don't compromise on. Exactly. There are lots of things, however, that as long as you express what your need is, I need, this is what I need. What do you need? All right, now how can we work these two things together? And as long exactly. as you get what you need, and, and if your kid gets what they need, well, then that's like the ultimate win-win. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now we want to get to the nitty-gritty. I want to talk to about some specific behaviors 
that drive parents crazy. All right, let's start with tantruming. So we have a child. Uh, you pick the scenario. Uh, oh, let's make it particular. Well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do two different scenarios. One, the child is at home and uh, it's bath time and the child, for as far as you can see, for no particular reason other than it's been a long day, the child starts pitching a fit. And uh, it's also at the end of the day, you're worn out as well. So some thoughts on how to handle a tantrum when it's at home. And then we're going to give you a chance to talk about tantruming in public. Right. And so the first thing that I always talk to parents about with tantrums was even evident with what you were just saying. It's the end of the day. The child was really tired. So basically what I'm hearing you saying in that is sort of a setup, you know, he, he's tired. It's the end of the day, you know? So the first thing I always think is about proactive, you know, what, how can we be thinking ahead of time? You know, bath maybe has to happen at night under those conditions, but you know, a lot of times, you know, people will say, well, it was the end of the day where they're really tired and they threw a fit in the grocery store. Well, guess what? Don't take them to the grocery store at the end of the day when they're really tired (laughs) or think about, you know, before the bath, do you have to give a warning? Do you have to say, um, I'll tell you, my five-year-old granddaughter, she'll do anything if she can tell Alexa to set a five-minute timer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I have to remember that when I, yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So having like a little warning, a little time for your brain to adjust. So, you know, always, you know, giving, we we talk about how hard transitions are and prompts being so important. Many parents have heard this many times, but they forget. So, oh, you know, it's going to be bath time in five minutes. Okay. What toys do you want to take in there with you? Now we're throwing in choice and, and things like that. If all else fails and the child does have a tantrum. The worst thing to do is to have you also begin to get agitated and upset. The best thing, when children throw a tantrum, they're sort of out of resources to manage themselves. So you have to loan them your self-control or what we sometimes call as co-regulation. So you have to loan your calmness. So for a little one, you might be picking them up and, and, and holding them and saying, okay, okay, you know, like we do with the tantrum, it's going to be okay. Let's get you settled down. Let's get you calmed down. Then we'll put you in the nice warm bath. What won't be effective is stop it. There's no reason to be crying. Why are you even doing this? Generally, that's just going to exacerbate the situation and have it going on longer. Especially if your voice gets louder to, to be getting over the, the the pitching that's going on in the ground. And so if, if a tantrum is happening in public, uh, I'm going to, I think you've addressed some of that, which is notice that what, what are the, are you choosing a time to be doing something that your kid is truly at their very worst? Or is your kid hungry? Yeah. Is your kid thirsty? Is your kid tired? And if so, yes. you know, It's just not a good time to be doing it. We have that in the book. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. (laughs) Assess that. (laughs) Yeah. And if any of those things, address it. If any of those things are there, address it. And that might mean, you know, leaving the grocery store because... Exactly. This is a doomed, this is a doomed venture. And the other thing you mentioned earlier was setting some realistic expectations in advance uh, and something to look forward to when we get back in the car, we'll, uh, we'll sing songs or we'll, you know, 
put on the music or whatever, something yeah. that, the, uh, that the kids would uh, look forward to when they're, when, when they're leaving. Okay. Absolutely. What about in the next specific behavior, name calling or teasing? Mm-hmm. So if it, you know, a certain amount of name calling and teasing is just going to happen in childhood. Um, but there are, are times um, that it can get really vicious. I mean, I, I've even worked with internationally adopted kids who have siblings that call them racial slurs um, or young girls that are called really, you know, vulgar names by a sibling. And so one of the first things that we do around that is set some family rules about that, that everyone's going to agree to. Just as a sidebar, Dawn, one of the things I often find is I'll ask kids, what are the rules, the non-negotiables in your house? And they'll say, I don't know. So usually no name calling and, you know, mean words like that to each other are okay. We do not do that. So if it, if it does happen, you have to apologize and there's going to be a consequence. But first, you have to set the limit that we're not going to do it. And a, and a lot of families have not said that or have not done that. Or the parents call each other names when they get mad. So, yeah. so I mean, there's got to be a, first a standard set. And I, and I really re- recommend it being like a family meeting. Like everyone is going to agree that we're not going to do this. And you know what? Then I ask the kids, what do you think should happen if you break the rule? You'd be surprised. Kids really can come up with some good consequences. Hmm. And when they've taken part in creating the consequence, it sticks with them more. So, and then there has to be a consequence. Now, if it's like really out of hand and happening all the time and really vicious, then we got to deal with what's underneath the behavior. It could be in the scenario I gave you earlier with the very vicious racial slurs. That boy felt so resentful of his sister felt like she like hijacked the whole family was ruining the family. They were being held hostage by her behavior that this girl was taking all of his parents time. He felt like he hated her, despised her, wish she never joined the family. Okay. We got to deal with some of that. (laughs) Um, We can't just look at the name calling. That's just a symptom. So the first set of ideas is more like, you know, this is happening. It's not okay. We don't want to hurt each other's feelings. You know, we're going to set some limits and consequences for this. If it's really pervasive and cruel, we got to look at the anger and resentment underneath that for who's doing the name calling. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next thing, and this one we hear a, a fair amount, is that the parents will say, they're just doing it, whatever it is, uh, to get to get my attention. So how to handle attention-seeking behaviors? So the first thing I would say about that is if a kid's doing something for attention, they need attention. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that I talk with parents a lot about is proactive attention and proactive nurture. How often are you giving your kid a hug? When are you giving them a high five? Um, Sitting close to them on the couch. The reason I'm bringing up like proactive nurture and doing these things proactively is because then it prevents having problems with it later. 
doesn't this tie in similarly to the, the first tip we had, which is proactive attention is the same thing or, or can be similar to putting in deposits, positive deposits into your emotional uh, relationship bank account. Yes. So if you're doing enough of that, then you may see, yes, your kid is, you know, calling your name out constantly or your kid is poking his brother constantly or your kid is t stealing your uh, kids, they, you know, his brother's toys uh, or, you know, she's, you know, spitting at the baby or whatever. Yeah, she may be trying to get your attention. But like you say, yeah. maybe she needs your attention. Yes. You know, and I think, um, you know, when a, I'm a therapy therapist and, and that's very interactive, joyful and very connected play um, with parents and children. And sometimes parents will say, why? Well, why is this helping them? You know, why are their behaviors getting better? And therapy is so close and so intense and so nurturing. It's almost like almost like an inoculation of attention or something like yeah. so that you don't need the your parents attention as much as at other times. So, you know, when you're on the phone or when you're doing this or when you have to do something else, if you've given those doses of attention at other times, they're less likely to then like constantly be nagging you for attention every second. Mm -hmm. One exercise I like to do with parents, I'll just share this quickly, is to write down like, you know, when the child gets up seven in the morning and when they go to bed, let's say, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night. And how much of that is any kind of positive attention? Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's almost none. I mean, cause I don't really count like, you know, go to your homework or, you know, something like that. Yeah, nobody should count that. That, that would be, yeah, that's definitely not. Right. No, but seriously, if you look at how much of it's giving directives or having you do this, or you're, you're, you know, you're, you're going off to this, or I have to make you practice piano or, you know, it, it's eye opening. Mm -hmm. Like when are we just enjoying each other and having fun together? Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother thing is making certain that we, the the strongest families are those that play together and they can withstand so much more uh, of the ups and downs of life. But that's a whole nother topic because our next challenging behavior that we want to get your input on is lying. A child mm -hmm. not telling the truth. Yeah. So, I mean, I think first of all, with all of these behaviors, and we haven't said this yet, uh, Dawn, Many of these behaviors are developmentally appropriate at different ages. And sometimes I worry that children who have gotten these labels, like you have, you know, reactive attachment disorder, or you have complex trauma, they're, they're exhibiting normal developmental behaviors like lying at certain ages, kids start to lie and experiment with lying. And then it's seen as, Oh, they're doing the chronic lying or, you know, they're doing that thing I read in this list when really it's just developmentally appropriate. And it's a stage that kids go through. So that's the first thing with lying is recognizing kids do it. And it happens. And the other thing is, again, going back to um, what do you do? Do you lie? Do your kids hear you lying on the phone, you know, telling someone, oh, I, I can't come because we have this. Or um, do they hear you lying? And, you know, um, they heard conversation and how you're going to lie on your taxes. I mean, what? I mean, there's lots of things. So you always need to look at, am I modeling lying? Um, that's something. And I think that um, 
you have to make it safe to acknowledge lying. So you can still have a consequence, but if you say you're not going to get in trouble, just tell me the truth and you're really upset and you're really angry, they're probably still going to lie. So you have to be able to make it safe to tell the truth. You have to be calm. You can say, you know, there's going to be a consequence. And, and sometimes if it's really chronic and going on, on and on and on with kids with the trauma history, they need to be in therapy about it. It's a way to distance from you. It's a way to feel maybe safer than revealing their true selves or, or maybe they feel, you know, if I tell you that I did take that, you might get rid of me. It could relate to core abandonment issues. So there's like developmental lying. Then there's, you know, lying that come on, we need to deal with this. You're, 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 you know, and, 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 and maybe lying about turning an assignment in or something. And then there's this chronic lying. That's, that's about a trust issue and, and fear, and that needs to be addressed therapeutically. And one thing I would add, because we have faced this, is that sometimes some kids process just a little slower and that sometimes lying is the first thing that comes out. And one effective technique is to say, I don't want you to answer. I want you to think for one minute, two minutes, five minutes, whatever. Uh, It never takes five, but just give them time to process okay, this is what happened. Okay. If I lie, this is what's going to happen if I tell the truth and give them a chance to kind of think through everything as opposed to expecting an immediate answer. Cause some kids just don't process that quickly. And, and, and a lie comes off the tongue a little quicker. It's a little bit like that almost compulsively saying no. And this exact child did that as well. It, no was the first yeah. thing, but no buys time. No mm-hmm. buys time for that child to think through, okay, do I really want to do this? What do I want? But no was the first thing because they needed time. And once mm-hmm. I realized that, then I stopped expecting answers right away. In fact, wouldn't accept an answer right away. And much of the lying went away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the last behavior I want to talk to is it, it dovetails beautifully into what you were saying earlier about that some behaviors being developmentally appropriate. And I wanted to talk about sexualized behavior in play. That is a topic that, that particularly when we have children who've come from trauma, it, it's a double-edged sword because we, we absolutely need to be aware that that can be a sign that our children have been abused, but it can also be very developmentally normal that all children or most children experiment sexually at different ages. So let's talk about sexualized behavior as play. And that will be our last uh, topic to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think with, with, you know, our, our littlest ones, you know, up to two, three, four, five, they're, they're, they might be exploring their bodies, figuring things out about their bodies, wanting to run around with no clothes on, talking about poop and pee. All of those things are are just developmentally appropriate. I got news for you. That goes on a lot longer than three, <laughs> or yeah. at least in my house it did. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And even with um, school-age children, you know, some of that. And then getting into, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-olds might want to like be, you know, pretending they're getting married and playing boyfriend, girlfriend, and there can be even some exploration, you know, playing doctor, all of those kinds of things. Um, And when, 
kids are getting older, um, one of the big red flags that we really need to be aware of with sexualized behavior is power differential. So if you have like a 12, 13, 14 year old doing some kind of sexual play with a two, three, four year old, that's a big problem. Um, You know, these things that we were talking about earlier are more peer to peer exploration or self exploration. So if there's a power differential and an age difference that is can really very much be a concern that you need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So, so the power differential is one of the things. Is there any other things that would indicate that this one, uh, that this uh, this play, and this exploration may be a sign that we that that something bigger is going on? Yeah, I think when kids are exhibiting things that that aren't age, so exploring your body and wondering about it and pretending boyfriend and girlfriend, that's all normal things that you, you would be happening developmentally and also mirroring what you see in your world with couples or, or your parents, you know, or kissing each other or whatever. But when you start seeing things like, you know, chronically like humping a man's leg when they sit on their lap or you start seeing them act out what looks like sexually explicit acts. So when you start seeing things that really children typically should not have been exposed to, then you're really going to wonder, you know, what have they been seeing or what has been done to them? Um, So that's when it gets into a realm that you really need to explore more what's going on. Um, the other thing I would say is, is a little bit related to what I said earlier about power differential is predatory behavior. So, you know, younger kids before puberty, even if they have a sexual abuse history, they would sometimes have what we call sexually reactive behaviors where they're doing these things. Some of the behaviors I described earlier that would be concerning or even engaging in Um, sex acts with peers, but it's really, they're really acting out what has happened to them. And we just need to start teaching them appropriate boundaries and that this isn't an appropriate thing to do. They really don't know. Um, They know they've seen this, they've done this, this feels good. Whereas we're getting older into adolescence and somebody like planfully in a predatory way looking for victims that's a whole different thing with someone's emerging sexuality and everything that comes with that. And then we're starting to get into the, you know, could this be someone that's sexually offending? Um, So sexually reactive behavior is different than sexual offending behavior. And people seem to throw everything into sexual offending behavior and, you know, get very, alarmed that not that you shouldn't be alarmed, you need to get support and help, but that doesn't mean that you have a predator in your home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's a big difference. Mm-hmm. And at this point, if, if it's not uh, developmentally appropriate, seek help. There is help available. Yeah. And the other thing is that I think parents so often, especially with children who've been sexually abused, assume the worst. They assume that this child is never going to be helped. And that is absolutely not true. These children right. can heal and can move. Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they're going to become predators. I think that we just, we also, we as adults have to take a deep breath and, and get help. Yeah, that's what I should have said at the very beginning. First of all, if something like this is happening, try to stay calm (laughs) and and not get so freaked out about it because that can lead to a lot of shame for the child and fear 
and feeling like I need to hide this now. And, you know, you have to be accepting and supportive and finding help. And that might, that may mean talking to a friend or, or your partner, because I, I realize it can really freak you out, but let's just try to take the freak out somewhere else as best you can, not with the child. <laughs> Well said. Thank you so much, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, with being with us today to talk about practical tips for disciplining kids who have experienced trauma. Let me remind everyone that this show, the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to talk with your adoption or foster care professional. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.